The Cutting Edge, WMUL-FM, Huntington. This is Air Check, a public affairs presentation of WMUL-FM, the student broadcast voice of Marshall University. Air Check explores important issues affecting Marshall and the Huntington community. And now, this edition of Air Check. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Air Check. That will profile Marshall football's biggest scandal. I'm Justin Zimmer. Over the next 30 minutes, we will go over the recruiting scandal and the 28-game non-winning streak that plagued the Marshall football program in the 1960s. We begin, though, with an overview of the Marshall football program prior to 1967. The Marshall Thunderbird football program began competing in 1895. The first head coach of record was Boyd Chambers from 1909 to 1916. In 1925, the Thunderbird won the West Virginia Intercollegiate Athletic Conference under head coach Charles Tallman. Marshall would win the conference again in 1928 under Tallman. However, after the 1928 season, Tallman left the Thundering Herd to become the head coach of the West Virginia Mountaineers while serving in the state legislature. In his four years in Huntington, Tallman finished 22-9-7. In 1931, when the Thundering Herd won the West Virginia Intercollegiate Athletic Conference again, Marshall had a new head coach at the helm, Tom Dandelet. Dandelet only won one title with the Thundering Herd, in 1931. When Marshall won its next conference championship in 1937, there was a new head coach at the helm, Cam Henderson. He notably guided the team to its first bowl appearance on record, the Tangerine Bowl in Orlando, Florida. Marshall lost the game to the Catawba Indians 7-0. However, Henderson did not coach in the Tangerine Bowl as he was with Marshall's basketball team at a basketball tournament. After Henderson's era in the famed Tangerine Bowl appearance, the Thunderbird Hood would not appear in another championship game or bowl appearance for 50 years. Herb Royer was the head coach at Marshall from 1953 to 1958, and Charlie Snyder led Marshall from 1953 to 1967. Under Snyder, however, the Thundering Herd would begin a non-winning streak that would last from the end of the 1966 football season all the way through the middle of the 1969 football season. The play-by-play voice of the Thundering Herd for Learfield IMG, Steve Cotton, talks about the rough circumstances that Charlie Snyder inherited. Charlie Snyder had been the head coach from 1959 up to 67, I think it was. And he inherited a pretty rough situation. They weren't doing well under Herb Royer. And he slowly built the program piece by piece from his first year they went one and eight. In 1964, they went seven and three. And Charlie had been a player at Marshall under Cam Henderson. He uh, played right before World War II for a couple of years and then went into the Navy during the war and then came back and finished his career in 1946 and 1947. He was the captain of the 1947 team that went 9-2 and two and went to the Tangerine Bowl, Marshall's first bowl game. So he came back as the coach. He'd been a very successful high school coach in Catlettsburg, Kentucky, which is where he was from. Then he went to Lexington as a high school coach, and then he was the coach of the University of Kentucky freshman team. And so that's when Marshall hired him from that position. Slow going. They didn't have a lot of talent. He recruited very well for what Marshall was able to do. Finally had a winning season in 1963. They went 5-4-1. and one. Then they went 7-3 and three in 1964. And in 1965, for the first time in decades, Marshall was a favorite to possibly win a conference championship. And... They started well. They won their first four games, 4-0. Fourth game was against the Quantico Marines from the Marine Academy. And they won the game, but their star quarterback, a guy named Howard Lee Miller, Howie Lee Miller from Point Pleasant, 
had shattered all of Marshall's modern-day era passing records. And in that game, he tore knee ligaments. He was also the punter, and I think it was on a punt play, tore knee ligaments against the Quantico Marines. So they went from 4-0. They lost five straight games. They won their regular season finale. But all that momentum from winning games had been knocked away. The next year, won just a couple of games. By 1967, his last year, they went 0-10. They had lost their last game in 66, so that's where the losing streak started. 0-10 in 1967. Again, the momentum was totally gone. Woody Woodson believes that the non-winning streak had a cause in Snyder's firing, but also the additional budget constraints that the program was dealing with. Losing had something to do with it, and they probably kept him longer than they would have kept a non-Marshall guy. Charlie was a big deal there, being the captain of the Tangerine Bowl team. He's a guy who played a couple of years before World War II, went in and did his business in World War II in the armed forces. He came back out. Two years, he captains the team that went to the Tangerine Bowl in 1947. That was Marshall's first bowl. Took 50 years to get back there again. So that was a pretty big deal with Cam Henderson when they took football away from Cam. That was a big move. And they kind of struggled. Royer got them on the right path, but there was no funding. So Charlie comes in, and Charlie gets them. He really has them on an upswing, but the two-platoon football thing really hurt Marshall too. Because if you only got to recruit at least 11, let's say 20 guys were maybe going to play both ways. It's a lot easier than recruiting offense, defense, and special teams to be completely separate guys. The budget situation was bad at Marshall in the 60s. That the team could not even afford the basic necessities for the program to be successful. I mean, we ran on the threadbare budget in the equipment room. You got one t-shirt, one pair of shorts, and you got a couple pair of socks and a towel. Don't lose them. Don't come in and tell me you need another one. Because that's your one. And you know, we just had no budget. We would always buy maybe 25 footballs a year. They start out camp with 25 new footballs now. And they have a new football for every single game of the season. They maybe go through 200 footballs in a year. My God, we would hide six game balls. If it looked like rain, we couldn't afford to get them wet. We only had six or eight altogether. So yeah, it was more than financial. In Ernie Salvador's piece entitled, Man in the Middle, he talks about how the undercutting impacted other coaches in the athletic department. The lead players in the earlier productions were Pete Peterson, Herb Royer, the late Cam Henderson, and Jewel Rivlin. Peterson resigned quite suddenly. Royer, Snyder's predecessor, resigned after a bitter behind-the-scenes struggle. Henderson was forced to resign. Rivlin resigned after nearly three years of undercutting. Unfortunately, from Charlie's standpoint, he can't fight back. It would be futile for him to quote chapter and verse on the heavy yoke he's been under trying to assemble a respectable program at a school burdened under an even heavier yoke. Occupancy of West Virginia's Academy Poorhouse, whose lease is held by the state legislature. For one thing, he might be talking to a genuine supporter. For another, those who want his head will only pretend to listen. Adding to Snyder's discomfort are the rumors that refuse to die. These report that he has already resigned and his successor picked.
Also, another change that Woodrum suggests led to the struggle of the team was platoon position football, where players played on offense and defense. The program in the 1960s really suffered when the MAC decided to go to two-platoon football when the NCAA made that legal again. In the early 50s, they had grown back on the process of guys playing on only one side of the ball. And so they've gone back to pretty much where you were offense and you were defensive. You were another guard. You were guard or center. You played the opposite number, you know. You might have a quarterback playing defensive back. Almost like high school football is here in West Virginia, where guys have play both ways because there's not enough talent to go to one platoon offense one platoon for defense and so the football really started to take a nosedive after they voted to have that now i have talked to players that played back in that era tom good being one of them tom was a linebacker was not only drafted by the afl but the nfl after his senior year at marshall and was a really good player he told me though he said the players were tickled to death when they could go and just play on one side of the ball he was a center and linebacker he immediately just became a linebacker. He also told me Bill Winters, another great player from Marshall, he said Bill was the only guy that still wanted to play offensive tackle and defensive tackle and said he was tough enough to do it. After the 1967 season and the non-winning streak at 11 games, Marshall parted ways with Charlie Snyder. Marshall hired Perry Moss in 1968. Moss started his career as the freshman coach at Illinois and was the assistant at Washington. After the University of Washington, Moss made stops as an assistant at Miami and Wisconsin as a running backs coach. Moss then had his first chance to be a head coach at Florida State. However, Moss left after one season, finishing with a record of four and six. The next move in the career of Perry Moss was traveling north of the border to be the head coach of the Montreal Alouettes in the Canadian Football League. Moss spent three years north of the border before moving to West Virginia for the first time in his career, Moss was head coach of the Charleston Rockets. In two years in Charleston, Moss finished 25-3. and After a two-year stint in Charleston, Moss made his way down to Florida to be the head coach of the Orlando Panthers of the Continental Football League. In his two years in Orlando, Moss finished 23-5. and However, after two years in Orlando, Moss would make his way back to the Mountain State to serve as the head coach of Marshall. Ernie Salvador, a columnist for the Herald-Dispatch, deemed the hiring of Moss a relief. At that instant, if one had cocked an ear outside, he might have heard distant amens echoing around the four corners of this redefined Marshall country. Marshall country is the country Perry Moss staked out, and it approximates Eddie Barrett's project to regionalize the university more, to get it to break out of its almost local confines. Marshall, ironically, has never been truly local. That it acquired the image can be blamed on circumstance. Perry Moss hopes to change that through his football program the way Ellis Johnson has with his now successful basketball program. He has set no timetable and has not been given one to follow. That's as it should be. It took a quarter of a century of almost chronic mishandling, innocent though it may have been, to put big green football where it is today. Perry Moss doesn't expect to take that long to get matters straightened out. After going winless in the 1967 football season and a losing streak at 11 games from the end of the 1966 season against Ohio through the 1967 football season, however, the first game of the Perry Moss era would be different as the game ended without a win or a loss, but a tie to regional foe, Moorhead State. The game between Marshall and Moorhead State would have two first-year head coaches going head-to-head as Jake Hallam was making his debut for the Eagles. Though Marshall and Moorhead State would tie, the Marshall now winning streak continued. 
The only touchdown for the Eagles was scored by Lewis Rogan on a rushing touchdown giving Moorhead an early 7-0 lead. However, the thundering herd responded in the second quarter as Don Swisher threw a three-yard pass to Charlie Jones to tie the game at 7, which would be the final score. For the majority of the 1968 season, most of the college football world was unaware of the actions at Marshall and the recruiting violations that were taking place. However, Cotton believes that one game in particular put people on notice, perhaps regarding the talent at Marshall. The one thing you say that uh, stands out in terms of potential probation or problems was that 1968 freshman football team. Freshmen were not eligible to play for the varsity then, and Marshall's freshman team which was all those guys who were, you know, I'd say you can check on the probation stuff, but through illegal recruiting, whatever, dominated that year. They just buried Kentucky's freshman team and Ohio's freshman team, and I think maybe everybody they played, they, they kind of whipped. So that was, as you look back with 2020 hindsight, that's probably the only sign that something was unusual. In the game between Marshall and the University of Kentucky, Kentucky struggled with passing the ball on offense. Garnett Scott, who started the game, went four for 14 with one touchdown. Steve Tingle for Kentucky would come in the second half and he went 14 for 31. However, for Marshall, the herd was led by Ted Shoebridge, who went 14 for 36 on 241 yards. In that ball game against the University of Kentucky, Marshall generated 402 yards of offense. Marshall's junior varsity team faced off with the University of Kentucky's junior varsity team on October 3rd, 1968. Kentucky lost to the Thundering Herd by a final score of 27-16. The varsity team, the same week, lost to Xavier by a final score of 30-20 after leading 20-0 in the second quarter. At that point, Marshall's non-winning streak was extended to 15 games, still second behind the University of Maryland. However, a week later, Marshall's non-winning streak would be first in the nation as Maryland would defeat the University of North Carolina by a final score of 33-24. However, during the Moss era is when all of the recruiting violations that would lead to the probation of Marshall in 1969 were brought to light. In the modern day era where the common jump is from the college ranks to the professional ranks, the arrival of Moss could be deemed as a step down. Steve Cotton believes that while Moss came from the professional ranks, it is still difficult to find a motive for why the recruiting violations took place. Yeah, I really couldn't say what his motivations or, or whatever. I'm guessing because he had also coached at Florida State maybe as the head coach and then was with the Charleston team in the lower level professional leagues and but I don't know like uh, what what caused whatever happened to happen I don't know if it had been more of a common practice maybe in his younger era and he didn't I don't know I don't know how aware he was of rules what was wrong if he didn't care. The public address announcer for Marshall Football, Woody Woodrum, talked about how when Marshall started the recruiting violations, it was more or less of a chance to see how far they could go. And I think the general feeling was, well, how bad can they ding us if they come after us? And so they were kind of right in one aspect. The NCAA gave Marshall, despite 144 alleged violations, again, they gave him a one-year probation. But the Mac saw a chance to get rid of their poor cousin, in West Virginia. Beyond the unusualness of winning a game against the University of Kentucky's freshman team, the other deemed unusualness was the roster construction. The Thundering Herd went across the country, and one of the places the Thundering Herd went was Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Stan Voigt wrote for the Tuscaloosa News. 
He said that in 1968 in Tuscaloosa, there was not a common familiarity with Marshall. It was new. I'd never heard of it before. Uh, and I, I thought it was, there was, I think there were three in one class and then one in another class and then the freshman who came along later. And I, I assume the three encouraged the one and then the four encouraged the other one. But I, how they cooked up with Marshall, my guess is that Marshall was, at the time, had a much more integrated sports program than they would have found in any southern school. And that's well, part of their recruiting was to go in the south and attract players who wouldn't otherwise get an opportunity. Why it was Marshall, I don't know. But I imagine that was the that was the foothold they had that they were willing to and, and embraced integration of their sports programs and let's go down there and see what we can find in the backyard of this power university in Alabama. At the time of 1968, Marshall University had been integrated with African-American athletes since 1954, as the university was led by Dr. Stuart Smith. However, the school that Voight was covering was segregated, and the athletes from Druitt, the only real opportunities that were available for athletes, were at historically black colleges and universities. I don't remember covering any signings and having reports on any signings other than the unusual fact that we had so many from that school going to that, going to to Marshall, and, and that was the angle to me. So why they got there, who else was, was showing up at school, I have no idea. I don't know. I know Alabama wasn't, because they didn't sign their first black player until 1970. So they, these folks were left to go wherever they could, Tuskegee or, or uh, Grambling or the more historically black schools or the northern or midwestern schools. I think most of the Big Ten schools were recruiting black players and playing them at Marshall. West Virginia may be backward in some ways, but in that respect, they were not, and they were signing the best athletes they could find. And for some reason, and I can't help you with it, they found this uh, connection to this little high school in, in, uh, in Alabama, in the shadows of the University of Alabama. That in Red Dawson's book, a Coach in Progress, Marshall Football, A Story of Survival and Revival, that at least according to Dawson, there was no illegal behavior. Dawson writes, quote, Prior to 1968, whether it was entirely accurate or not, Marshall's football team was characterized as being made up of players from West Virginia that West Virginia University did not want, boys from Ohio that no one in the Big Ten wanted, and junior college players no one had ever heard of. However, by the winter of my first year at Marshall, the program benefited from some extra funds via fundraising by boosters belonging to Marshall's Big Green Club. With the additional funding, we expanded the recruiting into faraway states like Texas and New Jersey, as well as Alabama and Florida, my primary recruiting ground. Hundreds of letters were sent all over the country asking players to come try out at Marshall for a good chance at getting a football scholarship. Honestly, at the time, I had no idea we were committing NCAA violations by requesting tryouts. The Thundering Herd roster in 1968 had players from Georgia, Indiana, Iowa, Kentucky, Maryland, Missouri, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Virginia, and West Virginia. Would you add that compared to other schools, Marshall had limited scholarships compared to other institutions across the country. However, bigger schools such as Alabama would use football scholarships for other sports. 
They were working under a theme in 1968 that they had 35 full scholarships to give, and I know that really sounds tiny. It is. I mean, some schools like Alabama were giving out 150 scholarships. They came up with the Bear Bryant rules saying you had to be mainly a football player to be on scholarship because he was putting guys on the swim team. He was putting guys on the track team. And of course, they were all football players, but they were getting this other scholarship. And so the rule was you could call a football player. And then they put him on a swim team and he just wasn't going to be legal anymore. That's when they started setting some limits on scholarship, which is when I came to school in the 70s. I think Division I was still about 125 scholarships then, and Marshall was probably still giving out just half that many. And as a start, as Marshall became a little more funded, was able to give out more scholarships, then rules began to change a little bit, and that was a great thing. As the recruiting violations were occurring, Marshall would audition players for spots on the team. However... If a player was not selected to the team, there was still some form of financial compensation. And if a kid was good enough, he got a full scholarship. If he didn't, he would go to the bank. And the bank was made to understand who these kids were, and they would get a loan. And the way Red talked about it in his book, I think it was like a loan they wouldn't have had to pay back. It was considered like it was from a program that made money available to kids. So they got some money that way. And then they add some others who weren't good enough to have a full scholarship, but if they could get a loan and stay in school, they wanted to continue on the football team. I was talking about players that played in that era when entire rooms full of guys would come in for a tryout and be gone by Monday. Bus in on Friday, be gone on a Monday morning bus. Dawson and his book, fully details the process that players who did not make the team went through to receive financial compensation. Quote, If a player did well enough in tryouts but wasn't given one of the 35 scholarships, we had them fill out financial aid forms and instructed them to go to a bank in downtown Huntington. Although coaches obviously cannot arrange for an athlete to receive an athletic loan, the bank was alerted which recruits would qualify for a federally insured student loan. And since the Educational Opportunity Act to help the poor financial college educations had recently been implemented, any impoverished African-American player was sent to the bank, essentially received a scholarship, as well as in the form of a loan. For those who did not qualify, they could also receive financial aid through the bank in the form of a student loan, but it would be a loan that would eventually have to be paid back. Now, I've always claimed I was only following orders regarding the whole bank loan ordeal, which is true. But in all honesty, I really did not stop and ask myself if what we were doing was against the rules. We all just did what we were told. Unquote. However, prior to the 1969 season, the Thunderbird was suspended by the Mid-American Conference. Not only was Moss fired, but also the head basketball coach at the time, Ellis Johnson, in a move that was part of the cleaning house in the athletic department. The university president, Roland H. Nelson Jr. said, Quote, Appropriate disciplinary action will be taken by Marshall University Commensurate. With the seriousness of the infractions after the appropriate agencies have been consulted, Marshall University fully intends to clean its own house and to take the appropriate actions before the NCAA investigation of Marshall University. Unquote. After Perry Moss was fired, Ernie Salvatore wrote a piece entitled Nightmare's End. In Salvatore's piece, Moss claims that he did not see the report accusing him and his coaching staff of the 144 violations. Quote, you see, I knew it would take time to get another job because of all the adverse publicity. And all the while, my professional career was in danger. Worse, I had lost my job as a coach and didn't know what the specific charges were. To this day, I don't, I've never seen, 
the 142-page report of the athletic investigations Marshall conducted. I don't know who my accusers are or what they found, unquote. In the 142-page report, the allegations that Marshall was accused of were the following. Students receiving loans from outside parties, including donors, assistant coaches paying for student-athletes' room and board at tryouts, and offering financial assistance to those who made the team. However, soon after Moss was fired, there was only one coach who publicly campaigned for the head coaching position. That coach was Rick Talley. If he did not get the job, he would not return to Marshall, as it would be unfair to the kids. I would like to stay on as a head coach, but I doubt if I could stay in as assistant. It would not be fair to the kids or the other assistants after I had been head coach. With only a couple of days prior to the preseason camp of the 1969 season, Marshall University appointed Rick Talley as the permanent head coach. The 1969 season would be under the helm of Rick Talley. The season was beginning on the same pattern since the end of the 1966 season, with consistent losing. However, heading into a matchup with Bowling Green, which served as homecoming for the 1969-1970 academic year, Marshall was hoping that their luck would turn. In the early portion of the game, the Falcons were able to move the ball quickly down the field to get on the scoreboard to get a 3-0 lead. The Thundering Herd would score its first points of the day on a Ted Shoebridge touchdown to give Marshall a 7-6 lead. Before halftime, Shoebridge would throw his second touchdown of the ball game and give Marshall a 14-6 lead heading into the half. Marshall's Kevin Gilmore would score a touchdown expanding the Marshall lead to two touchdowns end the fourth quarter. However, the Falcons would make a final push to trim the game to a touchdown lead. A late stand, however, would not be enough and the Thundering Herd would win its first game since 1966. Marshall head coach Rick Talley gave the following statement. I've been on winning teams before and I coached on winning teams, but I was just so happy for these boys. I was just glad to be a part of it. It takes a burden off the entire university. It's something we don't have to be associated with anymore. After the game with Bowling Green, Marshall would go on and defeat Kent State the following week on the road by a final score of 31-20. Two weeks later, the Thundering Herd defeated East Carolina by a final score of 38-7 before losing the season finale to Ohio by a score of 38-35. Marshall finished the 1969 season with a record of 3-7. However, after being suspended by the Mid-American Conference in 1969, Marshall would reapply to join the conference and the league kept turning Marshall's application for reinstatement down. Marshall would play without a conference from the 1970 season all the way through the 1976 football season. Marshall would join the Southern Conference in 1977, all the way through the National Championship season in 1996. But in 1997, the Thundering Herd rejoined the Mid-American Conference, and Woodrum says the reunion was controversial. I mean, the thing that it was was you will move up for sure. You're moving into a more stable conference. You're moving up where you can play a lot of bowls. So you were excited about that. But there were still some hard feelings from people who were around in the late 60s and the early 70s. Ernie Salvatore was very anti-Mac. I mean, he wrote columns about it. He was like, you know, they tell Marshall they're suspended indefinitely, and then they turned him down in 70, 71, and 72. Kept saying no. Marshall was going, well, wait a minute, we got to build locker rooms, our stadium, well, we turfed the stadium with 17,000 seats, now the field won't be a problem anymore. And I think just when the Mac got a chance to get Marshall, though, they, they were very appealing to them. They also got UCF to come in about that time. They also got two very nice ads to the league. And I think, you know, there were new people in charge 
Rick Christ was running the Mac at that time, and Rick was really a great guy. And it was different people at Marshall, too, who were in charge. I mean, there were people that remember the tough old days, but they, they knew things this time would be different, and the Mac really wanted Marshall. This time, they were courting Marshall to become a member. And so, you know, we were in 1996. I mean, we'd done almost the impossible. It seemed like to me that got back to being national champions, being 15-0. and 0. You know, just absolutely roll people. Nobody was closer than two touchdowns in the 96 season. So we're working from a position of power. The Mac, in their minds, it was like, well, it'd be great to bring them back here and then start thumping on Marshall again. However, the story of the widespread cheating and allegations have not been kept out of the public light. The voice of Thunder Heard, Steve Cotton, believes that the widespread allegations have not been as publicly known due to the commonality of probation of schools. A lot of other schools have been put on probation for stuff. So I think naturally over time, if you were talking to somebody in 1975, the probation stuff probably wouldn't be, I mean, it was still probably very familiar and a part of the story. Whereas I think you get 50 years later that even if we were talking about whoever else went on probation, I don't, I don't even know who it would be, but other teams were being put on probation for stuff. It's probably not a big part of their story either at this point. I think that is something that more naturally fades away with time. After the 1968 recruiting scandal and violations, Marshall would be back in trouble with the NCAA in 2001. Marshall was put on probation by the NCAA for three years, this time for student-athletes receiving work benefits and answers on an exam. The program was stripped of scholarships for three years. Thank you for listening to this edition of AirCheck. My thanks to Dr. Charles G. Bailey, David Atkins, Lori Thompson, Andrew Rogers, Ben Coward, Nick Madawa, Steve Cotton, Stan Voigt, and Woody Woodrum. I'm Justin Zimmer. This has been AirCheck. AirCheck is a public affairs presentation of WMUL-FM, the student broadcast voice of Marshall University. AirCheck is produced by students in the W. Page Pitt School of Journalism and Mass Communications in cooperation with WMUL-FM. Stay tuned to WMUL for another edition of AirCheck. Visit our website, marshall.edu slash WMUL for a complete program schedule.